Welcome to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenglass. We are grateful to WVU, who offers renowned online master's degree programs in marketing communications. And this series is presented by the Reed College of Media as part of their ongoing marketing series. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Ruth. How are you today? Cindy, so happy to be on with you again. It is wonderful to have you again, the two of us together, with a really interesting guest. You know, about two years ago, I think it was, I had the uh, opportunity to meet Johannes Waldstein as a guest on the WVU first podcast series that Hmm. we started with the institution. And at the time, Johannes had just recently joined Fan AI as one of the founding partners, and he has the most interesting background. You know, he came from Dunhumby, and I don't know if you recall, they're like the data gurus of the grocery and CPG. Yes, indeed. Well, and there he was working with some of the largest loyalty data science um, companies, and he worked with Best Buy and Home Depot and Macy's. And you know, I'm a data geek, so that's really what (laughs) gets me all excited. Uh, And he had recently left there where he founded this company called Fan AI, and he was bringing together data and esports and gaming, and he had funded this firm to do some really interesting data attribution modeling, bringing together some of the challenges and solving for them for marketers. And I thought it would be interesting to ask Johannes to come back and visit and meet you, Ruth, and let's find out what he's been up to since he started out as a serial entrepreneur a couple of years ago. What do you think? He sounds so interesting, and I'm especially interested in finding out more about the data angle on esports and all of that craziness. This will be fun. Well, that was the whole point of our series is to find fun, cool, and interesting people. So Johannes, come on in. Hey, welcome, Johannes. Hello, Ruth and Cindy. Great to be on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I wanted to ask you, when we define gaming, I know when I say that sometimes, Ruth says, well, what are we talking about here? Um, and I want to make sure we're on the same page. When we're talking gaming and esports, why don't you give us a quick definition? Yeah, so a lot of people, when they hear gaming, they think gambling or sports betting. And gaming and esports is much wider than that. So that's mobile video gaming, playing on a, a PC or computer. And then esports is competitive Uh, video gaming. So professionals play uh, Fortnite or Call of Duty, Overwatch League, League of Legends for money, and that's esports, so competitive video gaming. Thank you. I'm glad we got that straightened out so we're not talking about gambling and casinos and betting. We're going to start our conversation around esports and video gaming. And when we first started chatting back a couple of years ago, you were 
full in leaned in into that video gaming and esports, looking at data and data attribution. And when I caught up with you and we were just talking about doing this together, you told me that you had pivoted a little bit over into traditional sports, which I think is a very interesting change considering we all think that gaming and esports is the big thing. What made you decide to go into traditional sports? So esports and gaming has doubled over the last two years. We're still in it. But the reason we we moved into sports and entertainment is that as a percentage of what big brands spend, it's still very small. So somebody like a Pepsi or a Coke will spend half a billion dollars a year on sponsorship and only a handful of million in gaming and in esports. So when we started working with the big brands, in esports and gaming, they said, can you also do this for the NFL? Can you do this for um, MLB? Can you do this for NBA? And we said, of course. <laughs> we found that that was a much bigger market for the big brand sponsors. So you're following the money. We're following the money. And as, as an entrepreneur, that's what you need to do. You need to follow where the revenue is and where the most repeatable recurring revenue is. And for us, that's now partially esports and gaming, but more in the sports and entertainment realm. So the audience is massive. It's global. Is it not also more engaging during COVID than traditional sports now that we can't be in person at events? It's, it's hugely engaging. So if you look at time spent, people are watching Twitch, which is the largest streaming platform now owned by Amazon. So they've doubled their viewership. And all of the games publishers are laughing because people are at home. So you can take a break from work. And instead of going and having a cigarette or stepping outside, you can play video games or do something with your children. So it's, it's a huge and growing market. I think for big brands, big brands still want an in-person experience. So there is something different about going and tailgating. There is something different about having physical events and Esports was starting to do that, paused during COVID, but Overwatch and League of Legends were starting to fill stadiums for certain events. So yeah, esports and gaming is definitely here to stay and COVID has, has really helped it grow. So what does your solution offer the big brands like Pepsi and so forth? So a big blind spot for the biggest sponsors in the world is knowing what audiences really spend with them offline uh, more than 80% of transactions are still offline. We think Amazon is eating the world, and they are, but they're only eating 10% of the 20% of transactions that are still online. So if you sure. think of particularly in CPG or QSR, quick serve restaurant, you have to go, you have to go there to buy the item. So what our solution is, is it allows us in a GDPR and CCPA compliant way to match a TV audience or a streaming audience or people who have bought merchandise and to match them anonymously to the transactions in store. So we can tell a McDonald's or a Pepsi and a Coke how much this specific audience is spending with them and what the return on their sponsorship is. And that's, that's really what they want to know. They want to know, is this marketing activity bringing me a good return on investment? And up until now, they've been looking at things like brand affinity or engagement, other things that aren't spend. But at the end of the day, what they really want to know is, 
how are those audiences spending with me? How do I get them to be lifelong customers and to get them to be more loyal? So how does it work? So how does it work? So we work directly with the TV providers. We work with Ticketmaster, Live Nation. We work with Fanatics, which is the largest seller of merchandise. And we're able to match that using an Experian or a Live Ramp, which is a, a secure matching service. And we can then match that to offline and online transactions. So somebody will come to us and say, we're sponsoring these 10 teams. We want to analyze these other 20 teams. And we can tell them over the last two seasons, how many millions of dollars have been spent and then against a control group. So we know what is the incremental value. If you didn't sponsor it, what would they have spent? And then with your sponsorship, with your marketing, with your activation, what's the difference that you're getting? So kind of what's the, the added money that you're getting because of those activities? I see how that would work for online transactions, but how do you connect to transactions at retail? That's part of the, the magic sauce and why we've raised $14 million is because uh -huh. we're able to do that with our, with our, in a compliant way with our financial partners. So that's what we've spent many years building is the ability to, to do that matching. You know, there's been a lot of talk I've been hearing and reading recently about incremental measurement. For many of us, we've been looking at ROI, ROMI, return on marketing investment, return on investment, or ROAS, right? yeah. return ROAS. on ad spend, yeah. But incremental measurement is getting a lot more traction than it has in the past. Identifying lift, increase in performance as opposed to incrementality, as opposed to just overall ROI. Why do you think incremental is taking off and is getting more traction now? I think there's a big drive towards accountability. And if you're a CMO or if you're a head of digital or if you're a head of sponsorship, you can't just go spend the money any way that you want. You really have to come back and account for that to the board, to the shareholders, to the market. And so incrementality is the most honest way to say, is this really making money? Are the activities and the spend that we're doing in A, B, and C? And is A doing better than B or better than C? So I think it's, and I think COVID is helping this, which is sports and advertising is under huge pressure. The human behavior has changed a lot. And so the, now the marketeers are saying, every dollar I spend, I want to know if that's a good dollar that I'm spending or not. And looking at real incremental spend is kind of one of the best ways of looking at that. It's like the ultimate in performance marketing investments, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. But there's still a number of impediments to these kinds of metrics that, or measurement methods that allow you to connect a early stage or top of the funnel marketing investment and an eventual conversion to revenue. So what, what are some of the impediments that you're, you're seeing or maybe even struggling with, Johannes? So one of the really big ones is the cookie crumbling. So third-party cookies going away. <laughs> Apple, Apple starting to turn privacy on. So you have to opt in to having your device ID picked up by your, your weather app and all of these things that are tracking your location and tracking your device ID. So they're all, 
all sorts of ways that privacy is being protected. And that's great for the consumer. As a consumer, you want your privacy protected, but you don't want spam. And so if they don't know who you are, or don't know your browsing history, or don't know demographics about you, then you get spam. So that's, that's kind of the, you don't get personalization without them having some data on you. So the, the struggle is between how do you give people privacy, but at the same time, how do you give them a really good personalized experience where the recommendations, the content, the ads that you get fit you and your life stage and your lifestyle. And so our approach avoids needing the cookies. We work with the people who have first party data that's explicitly opted in. So the consumer says, yes, you, the team, you, the, you, the ticket, you, the smart TV have the right to track me. That's there's reciprocal value that Vizio TV is, is giving me a great experience. They can track me anonymously. And what that allows us to do is not have to follow them around the internet. We can just look at the transactions and see whether transactions happen or not. So we have the beginning and the end, and we don't have to do any of the tracking in the middle. So those are, those are some of the dynamics that are going on in the market. Now, I was under the impression that tracking people around what they do on the internet was behaviorally important, that it helped us to understand what people are interested in and showed intent, whether it's engagement or future purchase intent or level of interest. And I understand about cookies and, and totally on privacy, but are we losing something if we can't follow people along in their shadow as they're moving around, just behaving? Hugely. We lose a huge amount. And so that gives a lot of power to Google. That gives a lot of power to to Facebook. That gives a lot of power to Apple and to Amazon, because those are kind of the big four ecosystems that know who you are because they have your email or they have your calendar or they have your sign up. So it's bad for everybody else because you're absolutely right. If I'm browsing for cars or if I'm, if I'm shopping for new shoes, there's, there's a whole consideration piece that if you can't track it, you don't know. So it consolidates power with the big ones. And a lot of other third-party companies are, are really trying to figure out what to do. Do you think your solution can apply to other industry sectors like Cindy and I have a lot of experience in business to business where a sales cycle can involve hundreds of people uh, buying circles rather than individual decision makers and sales cycles that can last as much as 24 months, multiple touches through all kinds of media channels, including taking the prospect out for dinner. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or a golf game. Yeah, so, which is all very important. Could, explain how this approach might be able to help in, in that kind, that level of complexity. Yeah. So again, this is a big data approach. So if it's a small number of leads or a small number of relationships, it's less successful. At the moment, we're more focused on CPG, QSR, so consumer brands, sports and entertainment. When we looked at B2B, we looked more at events. So you get huge events with a million people going or hundreds of thousands of people going to Vegas and you get lots of sponsors of the event. And it's very hard to track. Did any of these 200,000 people then become a customer of Oracle or a customer of this company? So we could definitely do it 
at that scale once there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. But again, CPG and QSR is such a big market that in the same way that before we were just really focused on gaming and esports, right now we're really just focused on sports, entertainment, and the big CPG, QSR, telecom brands that are sponsoring in that. If, if at some point events would probably be the right segue into it to get into B2B. Mm, interesting. I'm also reminded of the, the point that was made in a Wall Street Journal article, I think it was on February 24th, where the reporter was saying that IBM Watson has decided to sell its Watson Health business unit. And the reason is that the predicting outcomes for medical decisions needs to be based on such vast numbers of experiences or transactions or whatever we call it that and the volume isn't there in medical in certain medical procedures number one or it's not good quality meaning the all of the players in the process didn't necessarily make note of what happened so i'm thinking in this might be the kind of impediment to your solution in in B2B. other other exactly. industries because you mentioned that a small number of transactions would get in the way this is sort yeah. of the soft underbelly of ai isn't it it is where ai doesn't work with a small number of things the other thing it's a great article the other thing the article points out is that the price of getting it wrong is that somebody dies so right. if you if you if you give them the wrong treatment and they die of cancer that's really really bad sort of the nice thing for us is that the outcome of its marketing. So it's not an exact science. There's art and science. If you're a little bit wrong, it means you get a family coupon when you should not have gotten a family coupon. So the, the result is not as negative. And at the moment, we're working with very, very big numbers. But you're right. In B2B, where there's a small amount of data, it's less valuable. And that's, that's one of the limitations of AI. So part of what we're hoping to accomplish in our series is looking out that front of the the dashboard of the future ahead of us and the horizons that lie ahead of us and, and saying, what do we think is exciting and new and what we might be seeing? The predictive nature of data, the ability to do some of these very interesting attribution models to get great lift, to meet our customer where they want to be with compliance and with opt-in. But when you think about what lies ahead for you, Johannes, since you are always an entrepreneur looking at the what's next, what gets you excited about what lies ahead? I think two things. Uh, one is looking at it from the consumer perspective, which is working from home, having virtual worlds like Fortnite, where you can go experience a music event. I think we're getting much closer to, to having some immersive experiences. So I think from a consumer perspective, not having to commute, not having to do a, a lot of things like that, and having the kind of content that's really, really rich is, is very, very interesting. So what happens when people spend time there? What happens with that? So I think that's a really, really big trend. And then on the attribution side, I think it's great for brands to be more accountable and understand what works and doesn't work. And that, that also ends up being better for the consumer because instead of spam, the brand begins to understand what what is compelling to the consumer and what not. So you get 
less wastage on the brand side. They're not wasting their money. And on the consumer side, you get things that you're really interested in and that you're passionate about and that you would actually like to do. And that's, that's a win-win. Right. I can, I can certainly see brands being willing to open their pocketbooks with better attribution systems in place. That's probably been a constraint, not only in sports sponsorships, but in a lot of other areas. So this looks like the outlook is pretty bright. And where it makes, so we're just doing an investment round led by an investor who does a lot with talent. And if you're secondary talent, it's very hard to get sponsorship or get money from brands because they don't know your name. But if you can prove to them that it's working, they'll spend, they know for every dollar, I'm going to make $2.50 back. So it also opens up opportunities for creators, for talent, for influencers who are not the big, big name ones, but who need a way to prove their value to the brands because their name isn't household. And so I think there's a huge economy growing of influencers and talent and being able to make sure that that really helps the brand and that they're really bringing value is very important. So that's, I think, something else that will happen over the next year or two. So there's hope for Ruth and I as <laughs> talent. We- yes. <laughs> Listen, Johannes, you might be able to get us a really good deal with Pepsi or Coke. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll even give you a cut. How's that, Johanna? <laughs> well, it's been delightful chatting with you and catching up with you, Johannes. You're always so interesting and entertaining, and we learn so much. And Ruth and I are going to chat a little bit without you, talk about you maybe behind your back a little bit about what we learned, um, and hope that you will have a good rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Cindy. Thank you so much, Johannes. Bye. 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 Cindy, thank you so much for bringing Johannes onto our program. What an interesting guy. Not only his background in consumer store data or CPG data, I gathered, supermarket data, but also his the initiative he's taken to try to solve one of the most vexing problems in marketing, not only today, but for as long as I've been in marketing, we've all struggled with how to connect a marketing investment here to a sale there. <laughs> and if we can't connect them and we, we we can't justify marketing investments except by feel or by uh, we've always done it that way or, you know, our senior executives think it's a good idea whether we can demonstrate the value or not. And this applies not only to sponsorships, but to other tactics, right? Like think of the PR people and how they have struggled forever Uh, relying on numbers of clippings (laughs) to justify their time and effort when they, what they really want to be able to do is say that someone who read that article actually made a purchase or whatever else is the, the outcome we're looking for. I'm also thinking about event marketing where 
as in the B2B world, this is so important to us where the event managers will come home from a trade show and say, oh, it was such a great show. It was a huge success. And, and management will say, well, you know, where's the beef? And the event marketers would say, well, the booth was buzzing and the aisles were full and there was a lot going on. It was really a dynamic event. And then when you try to set your budget for next year, the managers are saying, yeah, so what kind of sales did we get from that show? Absolutely. And everyone, like you said, everyone's trying to be more measurable. We are all being held accountable. What's the return on the money we're spending and on our investment? And we've seen a lot of movement with public relations in this area. Hmm. Like you said, in the past, it would be how many people click through, how many people read an article. There are far more actions that companies are now looking at to measure uh, accountability in public relations. There is a place for PR now in uh, more of the performance marketing area. I believe because so much content marketing has come into play. And because so much of it is digital now. Yeah. So, you know, the PR people are the content kings and queens and mm, they have access true. to so much of it. If they can ride on the coattails of content marketing, which is far more measurable, they can get some of those metrics and they can take attribution for some of that response and lift because the content came from them in the first place. I was just sort of sad that we didn't have a chance to really find out what his secret sauce was. <laughs> I mean, and a transaction that takes place at retail or otherwise outside of the highly trackable digital world, how is he maybe inferring the transaction or some kind of matchback or something? All we can do is theorize at this point. Yeah, I don't know. And he, he was cagey, said it was his secret sauce. And you know, I'm thinking about how you can place your order online for your Starbucks coffee and or you could do it on your phone on the app and then you walk into the Starbucks and they know you're in there and they hand you your coffee. Now they know that you have done the transaction. They know from either near field communication or some sort of beacon that they have that you're now in store and they know that you took the coffee. So they're ear is mechanisms that take that online to offline or online into the actual in-store, like we're asking him for retail. But do you think there's an issue here about data ownership and who owns that pixel? If there isn't now, I'm sure there will be because so many of these cool new things that we're talking about on this program are data-driven and reliant on on data access and data capture. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're, we're finding great value from what people sometimes call exhaust data, meaning data elements that were collected as a result of some other activity. And the data capture was not the intent, it was the kind of side benefit. And in situations like that and others, 
questions of who owns the data are going to continue to emerge. As a matter of fact, Cindy, it's always bothered me that supermarkets are not getting the most value of the consumer data that they're already collecting. And, you know, the, the kinds of uh, shopping cart data that came from scanners and was assembled by various parties to try to understand the velocity and the, 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 the power of various coupons and so forth on the, on the part of consumer packaged goods who were actually the buyers of data from, say, Catalina and other, other trackers. Um, what that, that data was used really in a merchandising and inventory management kind of way versus a customer marketing kind of way, which always made me sad <laughs> that it was <laughs> being, <laughs> wasn't being leveraged. And when supermarkets did introduce loyalty programs and motivate us all to swipe loyalty cards, they didn't actually use that data as a way to deepen their relationship with us as individual consumers. Instead, they used it primarily as a coupon delivery mechanism funded by the CPG manufacturers of all those products. So I think they're still missing an opportunity in the, the grocery store world and other you know, retail categories. They most definitely are. And, you know, Johannes told us he came from Dun, Dun Humby. I never get it right, Dun Humby, mm. which started out as a, a consortium, I believe, and uh, was launched by Kroger and then got acquired. But they have been developing preference insights specifically around grocery and retail, where they're looking at preference drivers convenience, discount, reward, and then likelihood to have a connection with that retailer and then looking at share of wallet or what do you call it? Mm -hmm. Share of grocery market. And shopping cart. Shopping cart. Thank you. And so the smart, smart retailers are using that now and looking at how they can drive that consumer preference. But think about what the grocery stores are missing out on. It's and about time. <laughs> well, maybe we could uh, find out more about what they're thinking about the future of grocery store shopping on another program as a topic. Sure, especially now with COVID. I don't know about you, but I'm having my groceries delivered. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I went into a grocery store. And I bet your grocery store is not keeping a record of those transactions and associating it with your home. They're thinking of it as a logistics matter versus a marketing opportunity. And, you know, we, we should dig into this and become advisors to the supermarket world. Cindy, what do you say? Well, I'd like to know what Instacart is doing with all that consumer data they're collecting. Cause think of all the buying preferences that they there are. There you go. Right. A re not only, at a household level, but they know who and how frequently and they've got a subscription model. And let's get them in here and talk it over. All right. Let's do that for the future. 
So, Cindy, I thank you for bringing him in here today because he really opened our eyes to some developments that are possibly really game changers for us marketers. <laughs> Pun intended from our gaming experts. Right, there you go. <laughs> and on that note, I'll wish thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Day. Same to you. You've been listening to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenglass. Please be sure to visit go.wvu.edu slash mctoday to view our upcoming conversations, listen to previous discussions, and subscribe to receive updates.